This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, let's ask his guidance and direction upon our study today. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to. We're thankful for the way in which you revealed it down through the centuries during the period of Revelation for about 2,000 years. We're thankful for the way in which it was preserved by you through that period as well as up to the present. We're thankful that we have the ability today through so many different tools and so many different uh, uh, provisions to study your word and to come to an accurate understanding of it. And above all, we're thankful for the impact that it has on our lives through God the Holy Spirit to transform us moment by moment and day by day into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word today and we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, that you would make clear to us what this means and how we are to apply it into our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is arguably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to interpret. I used to think it was Revelation. Revelation is pretty difficult because you have to control almost all the Old Testament prophetic passages. But the Sermon on the Mount is difficult for another reason, and that is because if you were to pick up your Bible and start reading through the Gospel of Matthew after you have made your way through the uh, genealogy of the first, uh, halfway through the first chapter, if you continue to read and you're still motivated to read, then you come to chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. The way they are translated and the way they appear to us at first blush is to be somewhat impossible to apply. If you have been in churches that are influenced by liberal Protestant theology, where there is a kingdom today and where, uh, where we are supposed to be transforming society into a more perfect society because of the utopian foundation and utopian goal of Protestant liberalism, then you have been uh, you've been given a false interpretation of many of these passages, and you tend to read them and understand them in wrong ways. If you've been in Bible churches for much of your life, as many of you have been, there have been some different interpretations that have been given. And sometimes as you approach these passages from that framework, 
it seems that the Sermon on the Mount contradicts some of the things that you've been taught. All of this is to emphasize the fact that we have to carefully read Scripture. We have to understand uh, the context of the original message, the Sermon on the Mount, in terms of its original context, and we have to be able to relate it to the overall context of Scripture. As I pointed out in the previous uh, lessons on the Sermon on the Mount, as we come to it, we have to contextualize it and recognize that Matthew is including this specifically within the framework of a sub-theme within the Gospel of Matthew, and that sub-theme is on discipleship. There's the call of uh, four disciples that immediately precedes this. In all likelihood, comparing this with the other Gospels, Jesus has called the twelve already. And these are they to whom he is speaking, as indicated in the first verse of chapter 5. He calls his disciples to him, and he is instructing them. Although a crowd gathers around to eavesdrop, as it were, Jesus is not talking to the crowd or to a large crowd of disciples. He's not talking to a mixed multitude. He is not speaking to the issue of political or a social agenda. He's not speaking to a salvation in terms of gaining eternal life agenda. He is addressing what is expected in the life of a disciple. If someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, that's not the same thing as claiming to be a Christian. There are many people who are Christians who believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and they are saved. That's the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace does not say, yes, but you receive Christ by grace, but if you don't continue in obedience, then you weren't really saved. That's not biblical. That flies in the face of understanding grace. Salvation or gaining eternal life is one thing. Growing as a believer is another issue. And what discipleship addresses is the second category, which we refer to as spiritual growth or the Christian life. Now, this isn't necessarily addressing the Christian life in the uniqueness of the church age believer because that hasn't, the church age has not been announced yet. This is given under the time of the law in what we refer to as the age of Israel under the dispensation of the Mosaic law. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount in part is he is defining for us uh, and, and interpreting for us God's sense of righteousness in reference to the Mosaic law in contrast to the superficial interpretation of righteousness as given in Second Temple period Pharisaism and Judaism. That's part of the contrast. So what Jesus is doing is he's addressing his disciples. These are people, these are men who are already believers, who are already secure in their eternal salvation, and instructing them as to the kind of life they should live in light of their future destiny in the kingdom. For that message of the kingdom is what is the overall theme of Matthew. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah who has come to offer the kingdom to Israel. 
Now, that kingdom will eventually be rejected by the leadership of Israel and will be postponed. So it hasn't come into existence yet, despite all of the all of the desires and lusts of the liberal crowd who uh, just just desire so strongly to give us a utopic society. What the scripture says is there's no utopic society, no utopic political system or social system until Jesus comes as the king and establishes the kingdom. But in the interim period, there is a preparation of his disciples to rule and reign with him in the future. These were originally gathered around him in a different period of time, in a different dispensation, but the ethic, the standard of living, the application of these principles is designed for all who are preparing to be in that kingdom. So it's sort of a trans-dispensational application. And so the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on these eight Beatitudes, eight characteristics of, that, should, that should be, in the, be present in the life of those who are future citizens and future rulers in the kingdom. In many ways, these eight Beatitudes depict for us or summarize for us the elements that come later in the sermon, much as the Ten Commandments are a prelude to the Mosaic Law and are the foundation for everything else that is said in the, in the Mosaic Law. In fact, if we look at the eight Beatitudes, one of the things that becomes apparent is that there is a parallel between the first four and the second four, so that the first four becomes becomes something of a foundation for the second four. Now, many of us stumble still over some of these terms, such as the first phrase, poor in spirit, and this is not talking about physical poverty. This is talking about genuine humility, as I pointed out, those who are genuinely humble, who realize they don't bring anything to the table in order to impress God, that God is the one who supplies everything for us. Now, this is uh, parallel to the verse that we're going to look at today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For before you can be merciful, you must understand grace, which means you must be humble. So the genuine humility becomes a foundation to being merciful, the uh, fifth uh, beatitude. Second beatitude is to blessed are those who mourn. This, this is the, the, the ones who grieve over sin. That is, they understand their own depravity, and they recognize, therefore, the importance of maintaining a clean heart. That's verse 8. Blessed are the pure or the clean in heart, for they shall see God. Third beatitude is blessed are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, as I pointed out, is not being weak. It is being uh, properly oriented to authority, oriented to the authority of God ultimately, just like Jesus Christ was in Philippians chapter 2, verse uh, 6, or 7, rather, he humbled himself by becoming obedient and going to the cross. At the cross, he became a peace offering for the human race. 
That leads us to the third qualification, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are those, not those who go sit in uh, various international councils to bring about world peace, but those who proclaim the gospel of peace, which is that Jesus Christ was reconciling us to God at the cross. That is where we find this same terminology. Jesus Christ is the ultimate peacemaker. We become peacemakers by proclaiming the gospel of grace, which is announcing that Jesus Christ has opened opened the veil and opened the door to access to God. The fourth beatitude we looked at last time is those who crave righteousness in verse 6, and that is parallel to the eighth beatitude, those who are who crave righteousness are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. So this helps us to understand the framework and the structure of the Beatitudes as introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, as we look at this, continuing to focus on the uh, character of those who are called We're looking at the topic of grace, forgiveness, and mercy in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Contextually, this is within the opening section where Jesus is emphasizing the character and calling of those who will inherit the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom does not mean getting into heaven. Inheriting the kingdom is a reference to those believers who, through living the Christian life today, will receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and will have ownership privileges and fellowship privileges with God in the coming kingdom that surpass those who were failures. All will have eternal life, all will be in the kingdom, all believers, but only those who have pursued the spiritual life successfully as disciples will have special additional privileges in heaven. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed, uh, excuse me, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The verb here, translated merciful, or is, or excuse me, the noun, translated merciful is eliemon, which means pitiful, merciful, or compassionate. I prefer compassionate or merciful. We'll stick with the primary meaning of merciful. We'll talk about compassion as we go through this. This form of the word uh, is based on the basic noun uh, for mercy. This noun is only used two times in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's used again in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. There we read, Therefore, in all things he had made, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is emphasizing the fact that Jesus Christ is, as high priest, is merciful. In his life on the earth, during the period of the incarnation, he exhibited this mercy, genuine mercy, to a degree that no other human being has ever done. He responded to the pleas for mercy from the sick, from the crippled, from those who were blind, from those who were lame, from those who had leprosy, 
and he even gave life to those who had already died. There are three passages in Matthew that uh, talk about his mercy, those coming to him pleading for mercy. In Matthew 9.27, two blind men came to him saying, Son of David, have mercy upon us. They understood that he was the source of genuine mercy and that he could heal them from their blindness. Of course, that is a picture of the fact that if Jesus can heal them of their physical blindness, then he can also save them from their spiritual blindness and give them light, spiritual light. And Matthew 15.22 speaks of a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, who came to him and said, uh, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And he cast the demon out of her daughter, exhibiting his mercy. In Matthew seventeen fifteen, a third time, we read Lord, uh, that an, uh, lep- an epileptic was brought to him uh, by his father, and uh, his father pleaded with the Lord, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. This epileptic, this seizure that he had was brought about also through demon possession. Jesus exhibited mercy. He reached out to those who were uh, rejected by the religious uh, establishment of his day. The religious establishment of his day was operating on self-righteousness, and they looked down upon those who were sinners, those who had various diseases. They believed that was a result of their sin, and so they had no sense of mercy for them. Jesus often was ridiculed and rebuked by the religious, religious establishment because he spent time with sinners. He spent time with tax collectors. He spent times with drunks. He spent time with those who had been completely rejected by the religious leadership. One example that comes to mind is when the scribes and Pharisees brought to him the woman caught in adultery to see if he would agree with stoning her. He confronted them with their lack of mercy and with their hypocrisy. He said in uh, John chapter 8, He is without sin among you. Let him cast the first stone. And when no one stepped forward to condemn her, no one stoned her. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin no more. Note that he doesn't uh, ignore the sin. Mercy does, is not at the expense of justice. There is not a compromise with righteousness that we'll see in just a minute. The first century into which Jesus came was not a culture that valued mercy, either among the Gentiles or among the Jews. Among the Jews, especially among Pharisaical uh, religion and that of the Sadducees as well, they emphasized a self-righteousness. There was a works-based relationship with God, and so they tended to be arrogant. They were judgmental, and these are qualities that are just the opposite of grace and mercy. In their system, you would only love those who loved you. You would only show mercy to those who had already shown mercy uh, to you. This is the attitude that Jesus condemns here in Matthew 5-7, but also later in this chapter. In Matthew 5-43, Jesus says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, This is a shallow and superficial kind of love. 
that was unacceptable to him. In verse 46, he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? But if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than the others? Even the Gentiles do the same. His point is that the standard of behavior internally and externally expected of a disciple is far different from that that is exhibited by the culture around us. The Gentiles were no better than the Jews. A popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. For the Romans, mercy was a sign of weakness. It was a sign that you weren't... Uh, weren't a real man. It's sort of a, um, a similar today to the false values of machoism. Uh, the Romans glorified a uh, machoistic kind of courage and justice and discipline and power that rejected any sign of mercy as a sign of weakness. So Jesus presents a standard that in his day, contrasts with the standards of the world as it does in our day. The Apostle uh, James, who's the author of James uh, the Epistle, who's the half-brother of Christ, states in James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. He is restating in a, another way, what Jesus says in Matthew 5-7, the standard of Matthew 5-7 is not something unique or distinct to the millennial kingdom, but is to be exhibited by believers during the church age as well. Now, to understand this, and to understand this whole concept of mercy, we have to understand it in reference to the character of God, and we have to understand it in reference to two aspects of God's essence— his love, and his righteousness. But then we have to understand it also and relate it in terms of two, uh, two qualities that are expressions of God's love and righteousness, and that is grace and forgiveness. Mercy is a term that is frequently associated in Scripture with grace, but it is different from grace. Grace emphasizes God's unmerited or undeserved favor. But mercy is the expression of God's grace in action. Now, we often hear those two phrases, but this morning what I want to do is help expand that just a little bit so that we can understand the distinctions between grace and mercy. But to do that, we also have to connect it to these attributes of God. So here we have a chart related to ten foundational attributes of God, the essence of God. God is sovereign. That means God is the ruler of all creation. He is the creator of all things, and he has the right to rule and govern his creation. He is righteousness. He is also justice. Now, those two words are interesting because in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, those English terms translate the same basic word groups such that the word group in Hebrew, tzedek, can mean either righteousness or justice. When you get into the New Testament, which was written in Greek, dikaios 
can refer to either righteousness or justice. It depends on the context and what the writer is talking about. So these are opposite sides of the same coin, so to speak. Righteousness speaks of the standard of God's character, his absolute standard of perfection. He is the standard. He is the uh, beyond the platinum standard of righteousness. There's not a standard external to God that God must meet. His character defines righteousness. That's the standard. So by righteousness, we refer to his eternal standard. In justice, we refer to the application of that standard to his creatures. Now, often in human viewpoint or pagan thought, they always talk about a conflict between God's love and his justice. How can God be just and also love his creatures? Because for them, their love, the love in pagan literature, the love in pagan culture, is not a love that is inherently righteous. They always compromise one or the other. They cannot have a love with true virtue because they have a relative concept of righteousness and justice. Often uh, the human viewpoint concept sees this conflict between righteousness and love uh, because they think that in, in righteousness, injustice must always punish sin, and therefore God cannot love his creatures. If God loved his creatures, he would have to let them off scot-free without satisfying his righteousness. But in the divine viewpoint of Scripture, God's justice finds a way to pay the penalty for sin so that his righteous standard is satisfied and therefore his justice is satisfied, love finds a way to bring a just punishment for sin, but in doing so, that payment is made on our behalf so that we can have, we can experience the love of God in our life. In Romans chapter 5, we read that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The picture there is that the cross is a demonstration of the love of God, and it's at the cross that God's righteousness is satisfied, so that righteousness and love are not mutually exclusive, and they are not in conflict. God's righteousness is in complete harmony with his absolute love. Now, we have to define what love is. Love means providing the absolute best for the object of love. Now, we have a problem with that as creatures because when we look at another human being and we say, I want to do what's best for you, we have a limited knowledge of what is best because we're not omniscient. We can't really determine what is best for the object of our love. So that often, because of our own self-absorption, what is best for the person that we love is what's best for us. And so it ultimately operates on a very self-serving motivation. But because God is omniscient, he knows all the knowable. He knows everything. And he knows, therefore, what is absolutely best for each and every creature. So the term best, when we talk about providing the best for someone, the term best implies something that is of higher value than something that is simply good or better. In order for something to be best, 
we have implied that there is a value system at play. That value system derives from righteousness. So for us to love someone truly, that love has to be based on an absolute value system. Best also implies and requires perfect and absolute knowledge so that you can determine what is truly best for the object of love. Therefore, since God is omniscient and righteous, only God can truly love. This is why we have passages in Scripture, for example, that state that God is love in 1 John chapter 4. So because God is love, he can establish a perfect plan where his love and his righteousness are compatible. As we look at this next slide... We see that these attributes, righteousness, justice, and love, are brought together. And in emphasizing them, righteousness, justice, and love, we can understand the foundation of God's grace and God's mercy. Because God is both righteous and love, he can solve the sin problem. Mercy is not something that is going to be expressed apart from the satisfaction of God's righteousness. This is pseudo-compassion. This is what we experience many times in our life. People just want to ignore or overlook flaws and failings, sometimes malicious behavior, simply because we don't know how to handle it or because we just want everything to be fine and good. And we allow people and we allow children to get away scot-free with problems and with wrong behavior under a misguided notion of compassion and mercy. One of the greatest examples of this sort of pseudo-compassion in the Scripture is that of David's attitude toward his rebellious son Absalom. When Absalom was young, David did not deal with Absalom's sin, It was covered over, it was ignored, it was rationalized. And so Absalom was allowed to mature and allowed to let his own arrogance grow and dominate his personality. Because justice wasn't dealt with, the mercy was a pseudo-mercy. It was a shallow mercy. The mercy from God is not a mercy that ignores the satisfaction of righteousness and justice, but is based upon the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice. Failure to understand this has promoted the false mercy and pseudo-compassion today of socialism, the uh, pseudo-mercy of utopianism, communism, and political and economic liberalism because it does not ultimately understand standards of righteousness and justice. So it promotes a system built on pseudo-compassion that is ultimately not really merciful. There's been a lot of discussion in recent, the last couple of weeks, uh, because of the uh, anniversary of the so-called War on Poverty, which is touted as one of the great compassionate political and economic policies of this nation. But the reality is there has been no improvement of the percentage of people who are in poverty in this nation. 
it was built on a concept that where justice would not be was not satisfied it was built on a pseudo compassion that has not solved the problem and not done anything to improve the lot of those who were in poverty this is often the case when those who oper- those who operate on a false system of of utopianism so compassion true compassion must be based upon uh, solving the problem uh, in relation to justice first and foremost. Second thing that we need to understand is that God's mercy is an expression of his perfect love. His perfect love can flow because God's righteousness and justice has been satisfied. And so we read about God's mercy in relation to salvation in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God who is rich in mercy... He has abundant mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us. See, mercy flows out of love. So love comes first, then mercy. Mercy is an application of his love. And as a result of his mercy, we're told in verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so God's love is foundational. That's why God is stated to be love in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 and chapter and verse 16. 1 John 4 8 and 16 clearly state God is love. It's a, it's a foundational, uh, basic element in God's, uh, in God's essence. Because God is love and His love is compatible with His righteousness, it is a love that has perfect integrity. Therefore, he seeks what is best for mankind, and what is best for mankind is that the real problem has to be solved first. The real problem is a problem of sin, and if that problem isn't solved and addressed first, then all other solutions are simply temporary, superficial, and doomed to failure. So God demonstrated his love toward us first so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The third thing we need to understand is the relation between grace and mercy. By doing a word study of these terms, we find that they are often used together, but they emphasize different aspects of God's love toward us. As I said earlier, grace is often defined as undeserved mercy, unmerited kindness. Mercy is the same thing, but scriptures make this distinction that grace is one thing and mercy is grace in action. Grace and mercy are intimately connected, but they are indeed different. Grace focuses on the problem of sin. Get that. It's important. Grace focuses on solving the problem of sin, whereas mercy addresses the consequences the results of sin, the pain, the misery, the suffering, the distress that are the consequences of sin. Mercy addresses whether uh, the situation, whether it's uh, a result of individual sin or because we live in a sinful world. Ultimately, all of our problems in life are the consequences of sin. So grace addresses the issue of sin and the problem of the sin nature Mercy is the application of that to individuals who are suffering the consequences of sin. God's grace provides a solution for sin in terms of salvation, 
And mercy offers relief from the present consequences of sin, but without ignoring the problem of sin itself. That's so important. You can't truly address a consequence of sin if you haven't addressed the sin itself. You can't just put on blinders. You can't go into some form of denial and ignore the real issue, which is which underlies the consequence. You have to address the sin problem. We see this in the example of the story of the Good Samaritan. As the uh, Jewish traveler uh, is, is traveling and is set upon by bandits and is beaten up and everything is stolen, including his clothes, he is then discovered by a person who would have no desire to help him, a Samaritan, but the Samaritan takes care of him despite this racial antipathy that has gone on between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritan bound up the wounds of the man who had been beaten and robbed. He shows him mercy. It's not deserved at all, but he shows him mercy, takes him to the nearest inn, pays for his lodging and uh, until he is well. He is showing grace and mercy. This develops into the next and last area of mercy I want to talk about this morning. That is mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness is one manifestation of mercy. But mercy is much broader a category than simply forgiveness. Grace solves the sin problem. Mercy allows us to focus on the individual consequences of sin. And forgiveness allows us to... Uh, forgive a person for their sins and for their failures. As we go through the passages of Scripture, we realize that that forgiveness is foundational to the mercy expressed. Mercy of God is expressed through the cross. That the cross, the work of Christ, is often expressed as providing forgiveness of sin, because we are all born condemned by sin. We're born spiritually dead. Forgiveness has to be a part of the package of redemption, which we see in both Colossians and Ephesians 1, that redemption is related to the forgiveness of sin because the sin has been paid for. That's redemption, solves the problem. Then God can forgive us our sin. This is freely provided to everyone without cost. This is the glory of the Christian gospel, is we don't have to do anything to earn or deserve God's grace. We don't do anything to merit God's grace. He has already done everything for us at the cross, where he provided a perfect payment and a sufficient payment for our sin, so that all that is left is for us to trust in Christ. When we do, the sin problem is solved. And then God freely extends to us his mercy in providing solutions for us in day-to-day issues in life related to the consequences of sin. We'll come back next time looking at some other aspects related to Matthew 5, 7, and then we'll see that this is also uh, integrally connected to the very next two verses, those who are pure in heart and those who are peacemakers, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study grace and mercy. May we recognize that we have to understand grace at the point of salvation, but 
after salvation, we understand it so much more. And that we have to explore and think about what grace means in our own lives. And then we have to understand what that means with reference to the application of grace toward others in reference to mercy. Father, we pray that we might come to be merciful towards others because this is based not on merit on their part, but it's based ultimately on your character. We must understand that mercy must be freely given. And the only way we can freely give that is to understand issues related to forgiveness of others. But that ultimately is related to understanding your righteousness and your justice. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you have to do nothing other than simply believe, to trust in Christ as your Savior. Scripture summarizes it succinctly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today. We ask that you uh, drive these points home in our soul, that we might grow in our own capacity to be merciful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.